I think the niches are also interesting at the lower end because it's all fine to say you shouldn't have a pet if you can't afford to pay for care, but that's just a very flippant way of blowing off the fact that cost is a real issue in veterinary medicine. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by one of the most respected thought leaders on the planet when it comes to veterinary economics, Dr. Karen Felsted. Karen graduated from the University of Texas with a degree in marketing and spent 12 years in accounting and business management, six of those with Ernst & Young. She then made a radical career change to studying veterinary medicine at Texas A&M University, graduating in 1996. Returning to Dallas, she practiced both small animal and emergency medicine on a full-time basis while maintaining a veterinary accounting and consulting practice. In 1999, she joined Owen E. McCafferty CPA Inc., a national public accounting firm specializing in tax, accounting, and practice management services for vets. During this time, she also received her CVPM designation. In June of 2001, she opened her own accounting firm and also joined the prestigious Bracky Consulting Group. In 2008, she joined the National Commission on Veterinary Economic Issues as CEO and spent over three years there before returning to business consulting. Karen is currently a member of the Veterinary Economics Editorial Advisory Board, and in 2011, she received the Western Veterinary Conference Practice Management Speaker of the Year Award, and in 2014, the Vet Partners Distinguished Life Member Award. Before you get utterly intimidated by her glittering professional roll call, a quick word from today's sponsor. Your employees are the backbone of your practice, and if they're injured on the job, it's vital to get them back on their feet as soon as possible. And with the average claim costing practices nearly $4,000, having workers' compensation coverage is a must. One Midwest Small Animal Clinic team member was handling a stressed dog during an x-ray. The dog bit the employee in the arm and later became infected, requiring surgery and a hospital stay. Without the proper insurance coverage, this would have been a disaster. But thanks to the practice's workers' comp policy through AVMA PLIT, the $190,000 injury was completely covered. The most effective way to reduce accidents and avoid claims is to have effective safety protocols, and our friends at AVMA PLIT offer a free digital safety manual now available to blood dissection listeners. Download yours today at avmaplit.com forward slash Dr. Dave. Now back to the show. Karen was on my very first list of guests to interview when I began the podcast because she is one of the speakers I have learned the most from and I can think of few others who have had their finger so firmly over the pulse of veterinary business for so long. So it was a real honour to welcome her to the show. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with the multi-talented, articulate and economically brilliant Dr. Karen Felstead. So welcome back to another episode of Blunt Dissection. I am once again in Kansas City, home of the barbecue, jazz, and the wonderful Fetch Central Converse. Converse? I don't know what's happened to my teeth there. Conference. <laughs> home of the wonderful Fetch Conference. Rainy this year? Rainy. For, for the first time. For the first time in years. Yeah, it's actually cool. You walk up the street without feeling like, A, you're in a cloud, it's so humid, and B, you're in an oven. It's wonderful. It's like 80 degrees instead of 100. It's very pleasant, I have to say. So that lovely voice that you're hearing belongs to today's guest, none other than Karen Felstead. So, Karen, welcome to Blunt Dissection. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I am really excited to have you on the podcast because, well, I wonder if there's anybody with more relevant, useful, interesting data viewpoint on 
what's going on in the profession and and so i'm really excited to nerd out a little bit on on sort of your insights because i love sitting in your lectures i always feel like i go into your lectures and i'm definitely i I just come out very much differently informed i'm like ooh, that's all really interesting stuff so (laughs) so i feel very 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 honored to have you here and i know that like like this is going to be a fun conversation so you probably aren't aware much about the podcast, but obviously it's a very highbrow conversation we have. Very serious, no fun whatsoever, and <laughs> and all the, all the all right, exactly all the big topics and conversations. And and I want to hear about you. You've actually got a very interesting career journey pathway, so you can tell me a little bit about that in a second. But I always want to get into the really big ticket issues first. And um, I believe you've got a bit of a thing for ice skating. I do have a thing for ice skating. What, like, no, so tell me all about that. So, I mean, and I was never a skater as a kid. I mean, I took lessons like lots of people do and stuff, but, you know, never did anything competitive. But I just like it, probably because my mom liked it, so she watched it when we were growing up. So we're, like, into it, and we'll go to some of the international skating competitions and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's one of my fun things to do outside of work. So it, it was just something as a... Yeah, it was. Yeah, just, you know, who knows why people like different things, right? My sister's a horseback rider, you know, why did she get into riding? And I didn't, you know, so did you skate a lot? Not seriously. I mean, I took lessons home then because if if you're skating, was it kind of a cold part of the country? No, because I born and bred and lived most of my life in Texas, which is not exactly in the capital of the world. What? (laughs) (laughs) All artificial. Like you had Swedish heritage and so skating no, just no, came no, no, naturally. No, 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 like grew up in Minnesota or something. <laughs> no, no. But there's some ice skating. It's actually hard. There's some pockets of of rinks. More of it is probably hockey than it is figure right. skating, you know. But there's some pockets of rinks and there's a couple of, there's some good coaches in Texas. I mean, it's not, you'll find more skaters elsewhere right but, you know but that's how come we go elsewhere to see these competitions so Weird. so you travel all over or we, the u.s we haven't or? done international competitions but there are international competitions that come that to the come u.s, to US right. and so actually we've been to canada a couple of times so there's a a series called skate america skate canada skate japan whatever and they do that every year and they'll have skaters from all over the world and it's it's usually the you know it's the top level skaters you know the top 20 or 30 skaters in the world kind of thing and it's fun we have a great time it's just a nice little mini vacation it's in las vegas this year of all places and i'm like las vegas why would you have a skating competition in las vegas apparently they did it to attract other people so, I've been freezing in Las Vegas, like well, it, it, Western this yes, year. Yes, well, it snowed. Yes, <laughs> I was in the desert on June buggies with Andy Rourke and and it started Co, snowing, and it was so cold. That's hilarious. Like I couldn't feel my hands. Yeah, it was so yeah. cold. It and was, who would think in Las Vegas? Absolutely, I could look out from my room at the Mandalay Bay and see all that snow falling down on the it, palm trees. It, it was the it was weirdest great. thing, wasn't it? Uh-huh. It was really fun. Confused, yeah, I feel like anything is possible in Vegas, though. So that's like, true. There's a lot weirder things happening in Vegas, and oh look, there's ice skating. <laughs> like, how, how bizarre! True. Exactly. <laughs> all right, Karen. Well, take us back in time to your journey into veterinary medicine. Like, where did it all begin for you? It's very eclectic. So, I actually in high school thought I wanted to be a veterinarian, and there was a veterinarian who attended our church, and so I went out to his office on a Saturday morning just to, you know, get a feel for what it's like and stuff. 
but he was taking the dew claws off of these little dogs and it was horrible. They cried and they screamed and they bled and I thought I was going to be sick to oh, my stomach. He was stomach. like nipping them with yeah, like yeah. nail clippers or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't even remember the specifics now. I just remember that it was, you know, not pleasant. And so, you know, I thought, well, I don't know if I can deal with this. And we have no medical personnel in my family. So there's nobody to say, oh, you'll get used to this kind of stuff. It'll be fine, whatever. So I was like, okay, I guess I won't be a veterinarian. And then I went and I actually, I have a... I started with an accounting undergraduate degree, but then I was like, oh, I don't really like accounting. This is horrible. So then I went into computer science, and I'm like, oh, maybe not computer science. So I actually have a marketing undergraduate degree. Okay. And then I did that for a couple of years, and then I went back to get a master's in accounting. Yep. And then I worked in big eight accounting for a number of years. And then, you know, I'm like in my 30s, and I'm like, well, I really think I do want to be a veterinarian. So I worked at a practice or volunteered at a practice, and then I had to go back and get a year's worth of prerequisites because I had done all the science for non-science major courses, you yep. know, Yep. and then went to vet school. Which so vet school did you? I went to Texas A&M. Texas A&M. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because for me, I mean, now I'm in my, you know, mid-30s, and because of the cost, I could get resident tuition. And I wasn't going to non-resident. I didn't have the money. I'm too far into my career. So let me take a wild guess. Being a CPA at that point is probably pretty helpful in the decision making financially about what was smart and what was not smart. I think so. It was. You know, the thing that was a little discouraging is that, I mean, I was well established as a CPA, decent salary, that kind of stuff. And of course, at the time, vet salaries were a lot lower than they are now. What was this? What was a, there's a couple of questions I had. One was about how you, when you went down the different rabbit holes that you were interested in, what was it that drew you in? What was the point where you realized this isn't for me? And was there a process of backing out that, that like made that like workable, I guess. I'm just yeah. thinking that sounds like yeah. quite a, you know, a few bites of the cherry. I don't know. I mean, I'm one of those people that's kind of like, why not try something? Right. And so, you know, when I wanted to go back to vet school, I had been married for a while. We didn't have children. I was divorced. So, I mean, I didn't have any family, you know, ties or situation that would have made going back to school difficult. I'd saved some money, which I put toward vet school. Vet school was a lot cheaper than, than it is now. What year is this in? So I graduated vet school in 96. Okay, so that's not far off. I graduated in 98. Yeah. What, what were tuition fees in the U.S.? Then? Oh, you know what? I don't even remember. But maybe yeah. to put it into perspective, I had 30000 in debt. Oh, boy. So compared to, you know, today's 250 150 I mean, I know it ranges a lot, you know, 500 for some people. I mean, that kind of tells you. Tuition was a lot cheaper. That was my jaw dropping on the floor. Where is so... <laughs> 150 would be somebody going in their home state. Yeah. Where's 500? So I have personally talked to somebody. I used to do some finance courses at Ross, and I spoke to a woman at Ross who was going to have $500,000 in debt. Now, she was going to Ross, which is not one of the lesser expensive ones. It's not just tuition fees, is it? There's other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she had some undergraduate debt in there, too. I have been told of somebody that had debt of 750. Wow. And that, talk about jaw-dropping. I'm like, who let you do that? I mean, how could you even start life with, you know, three quarters of a million dollars in debt? I mean, it's 
it's like two mortgages. It's nuts. Or three. Well, and I, mean, I think the saddest thing about the debt of any kind is it just limits your opportunities. Yeah. You know, you can't, you know, like I did, I was, I was like, okay, I don't want to be an accountant anymore. I'll go be a veterinarian. If I had $250,000 worth of debt, that's probably not an option, but nope. I could do it, you know? So, so let's dive in here because I feel like you're probably the most qualified person on the planet to have a conversation about this. You know, your, your background, with you know, your overview of the national economic situation in veterinary medicine, your CPA, your veterinary degree, the finger on the pulse nature of the work that you do. I understand how we got here in terms of tuition. And I've asked a lot of guests this and, and it flummoxes everybody. But how do we make this work? It's what we're doing sustainable just now. And the, the backdrop to that question is really about, it feels like we have a leaky pipeline at the minute where, you know, we know graduates and we're getting up to I mean, three, four, five years. Half or more of them are feeling like the profession hasn't met their expectations. Now, as you say, if you've got a small amount of debt, no biggie. Right. Do something else. But if you're carrying a quarter of a million dollars worth of debt, that feels like the definition a of a challenge. tragedy. Mm. And almost entrapment at that point. So you said something interesting. How do we let people do that? So very bluntly, the question, first question is, is this a smart decision for people to make to go into veterinary medicine still? I think it's such an individual decision. And I, you know, I think it is in some cases. It's probably not in others. I think people need to be very sure what it is that they want to do. I think people need to think very carefully about what they want their life to be afterwards. You know, I mean, you can still go into veterinary medicine. I mean, certainly associates make a lot more than they used to. Yeah. And if you can find a practice that does well and you're a high producer, I mean, you can make good money. You do have some ways to manage the debt with the income-based repayment programs, although that's going to have some challenges 20 years down the line with the, the IRS implications, the tax implications. But I think if you think about it carefully, yeah, and certainly if, if you can see yourself being a practice owner, I mean, there's some practice owners out there who are doing incredibly well, not only while they own the practice, but at least right now with the sales prices for practices. Now, will it look that way in, you know, 15 years? I don't think that we totally know. Yeah. But I think even without the kind of nutty sales prices right now for practices, you can do well with a practice and make money. So I think it's very doable, but I think it's not quite as easy as it used to be. And people need to think carefully about what they're doing. Is there a sort of person for whom this seemed, this, you would say, look, this makes a lot of sense if you're this sort of person. And is there a person who this really doesn't? That's a great a question. You know, I think much as I think most people say, I go into veterinary medicine because I want to take care of animals and I love animals and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. It's a prerequisite. You shouldn't be here if you don't love animals. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. But I think if you go, if you're going into it saying, I don't really care about the money and I just want to have a practice, I think that's a poor decision. If you have no debt coming out of school and you don't care if your practice is profitable, it probably doesn't matter. You can't count on it to sell it for retirement. But as long as you've got that covered elsewhere, you're okay. But if you've got $250,000 worth of debt, you got to think about the money. Right. So, again, when I was down at Ross, one of the professors down there told me about a woman who had been dating a guy who was studying to be an accountant. He broke up with her because he's like, we can't start school with this kind of debt. And, you know, who would ever think that your wow. choice of a career that's, just... That's cold. Uh, I thought that was that's too bad. Cold. Uh, I was kind of cold. <laughs> it was. Maybe, that, maybe that's for the best there. Uh, maybe, yeah, for <laughs> a lot of reasons, probably. But, but it is a... You know, that was a conscious decision, a conscious based, decision, and it shows you the impact. It shows yeah. the impact, yeah. 
because what, yeah. you know, why subject yourself to effectively, you know, right. a, a, a quality of life? Right. Well, and it is a quality of life thing yeah. because, I mean, it is going to limit the amount of money you're going to have to do things outside of paying off debt, you know? Yeah. So whether that's where you live or, you know, you have a, the hobbies that you engage in or travel or whatever. Yeah. It's a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, as, as you mentioned, debt or salaries going up for entry level, is that having a knock-on effect through the rest of the, for want of a better phrase, the funnel, like up the food chain, as it were? So we've, you know, I'm hearing of signing bonuses from corporate yeah. paying like yeah. thirty, forty, fifty yeah. thousand dollars to a new yeah. graduate to yeah. sign on, and then six-figure salary for a graduate. Yeah. The number I was always taught was, you know, for a veterinarian to be profitable, they have to generate, you know, five times mm-hmm. their base salary. Mm-hmm. A new graduate's not going to generate. No, no. I mean, and there's no question, there are definitely new graduates out there that are getting 120 plus great benefits. Right. You right. know, that, I don't, that's not everywhere. No. It's not and every I'm practice, think every community. Exceptional. But yeah, but it's definitely happening. I mean, I have a, a client that I work with on the West Coast, and you can just not even think of less than 120 and benefits. A good benefits, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, right. And but so, now those are more experienced veterinarians. Two, and the goal has to be you get them in, but you've then got to make your practice busy enough and efficient enough that they produce enough to make it worthwhile. Right. And, and so how does a practice go about that? And then, you know, a graduate will stay on average for about 15 months. This is Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons data. I don't know if you've got That's interesting. I hadn't heard that, but. Well, this is a, a workforce survey, 2013. I think it was 15.4 months is the average. I could see that. Median. And obviously, but then they also looked at the bottom end and the number of graduates that move jobs within their first 12 weeks is an incredible percent. It's like low to mid 20%. Wow. Which is three months. Three months. Now, if you're paying a signing bonus or recruiting fees, that hurts. Yeah. Um, How do you build systems that get somebody who effectively doesn't have the skills to, you know, they're not having that sort of ability to engage with clients? The skill set to convert possibility into you know opportunity into mm-hmm. tangible mm-hmm. income for the practice. Mm-hmm. How does one build a system? Like what systems are you seeing that work in that I think environment? The systems that work because you really you really need a couple of sets of systems. You need you've got to have a practice that works efficiently, and then you've got to have systems for training your doctors. So from a, a team standpoint, a non-doctor team standpoint, I mean, you've got to have well-trained technicians, well-trained receptionists, well-trained everybody. You've got to think through every time a client comes in, what are the steps that we're going to have to go through? Who's going to deal with the client? What's that going to look like? What's the workflow go- Excuse me, going to look like? And, you know, make sure that you're not wasting time hauling the dog, you know, in 12 different places in the practice to weigh it and draw blood and whatever. And clients are having to wait because you know, we didn't schedule properly or whatever. So you've got to get the efficiency there. But then I think I think the practices that work best, and I haven't seen very many of them, but they're definitely out there, are the ones who have a very structured training program for a new associate. And that program may look a little bit different for a, new, a brand new grad from a, an associate who's worked elsewhere. But I think the associates who spend some time in that training program up at the front desk so they spend a couple of days up at the front desk. They spend a couple of days in the kennel. They spend a couple of days shadowing other doctors. They get clear training on how to use the equipment in the practice. So they really understand how that practice operates. 
And then they also get training in communications. But that communication training should be everybody in the practice. And I think yeah. that has to be ongoing. Yeah. But I mean, it all comes down to training people and giving them the tools and resources they need. Are there training clearly a big area? Maybe that's a good place just to wallow around in and, and dissect a little bit more. A successful practice, you know, you've, you've consulted with hundreds, if not mm-hmm. thousands of practices and seen circumstances. What are the common threads, the red threads that run through a well-run practice? You know, we hear about, you know, the no low profit practices yeah. out there. So there's maybe a part two is then what are the common things that really are almost definitely going to result in being no low? So part one first, let's go with what brings it brings us a, a high profit, high performing. A high profit practice. I think in the practices that I've seen that are of the highest profitability, it's the efficiency and the frugality and the prudence in spending. And of course, that's a, it's a little bit different in everything. Inventory control is one of the areas that I see is often just massively out of control. And yet inventory control is one of the easiest things if you get the right person to focus on it to keep under control. Yeah. But practices just don't have the right person. They don't spend time on it, whatever. And yet that's so simple to make work well. I mean, like staff drama, you're never going to make work well, right? I mean, in, in most practices, every once in a while you see one. But inventory control, you can do something about it and it's a big expense. You know, some of the other stuff, it's, it's I mean, we're not going to count the paper clips every day, right? But then when it gets down to labor costs, then you're talking efficiency. Right. So that means doctors have to be productive. They have to communicate well. They have to have appropriate staff people to, you know, so they can they can do just what they need to do as a doctor, you know, diagnose right. and treat. Right. So really zeroing in on the things that only the doctors can do yes. and having their hourly Absolutely. rate maximized. Yes. And using more yes. support ancillary staff yes. to do that. And, of course, the, the other piece of this, and this gets hard, too, is that a doctor can be a massively productive doctor, but if the practice isn't bringing in enough clients, so the owner or practice manager also has to make sure that the demand out there is appropriate for the number of doctors, because you can have efficient doctors, but if you have too many of them and you don't have enough demand, and you know, right now, I think, I mean, you know, you look at some of the areas, the suburbs of Dallas near where I live, we don't need any more veterinary clinics up there. There's just too many. And there's so few that are able to differentiate themselves to really bring clients in. So that's a huge part of it as well. That's a great place to talk about. Strategy in veterinary hospitals. You know, the strategy looks very ubiquitous and is, I'm a vet, come see me. Exactly. The end. Exactly. And I offer the same services that the 27 vets in a 10-mile radius of me also offer. It doesn't feel like we have a sense of what strategy actually is. I don't think we profession. do very well. I think we have a good sense of strategy on offering good quality medicine. But where I don't think we have a, as good of a sense of strategy, and there's always exceptions, right, um, is understanding who your market is going to be. So what's the, the niche of clients that you're going to try and draw in? And so, you know, we tend to say, we're all going to go out there and we're going to practice gold standard medicine and everybody needs to come and everybody needs to pay for this. Yep. But, you know, you look at anything else out there. You look at hotels. So we're in the Marriott, right? But not everybody wants a Marriott. Some want the Four Seasons. Some people want the, the Motel 6, you know. Right. Or you look at cars and some people want something really inexpensive and some people want the Lexus, you know. But I don't think we do as good of a job of that. Some practices find that niche, but sometimes I feel like they fall into it instead of it being structured from the beginning. 
So that's an area I think that we need to focus on. And the other part is I think what clients judge your practice on, it's client service, it's convenience, it's communication, because they can't judge the medicine for the most part. Right. The businesses that within the space that look like they're really thriving, more and more we're seeing, we've seen this sort of erosion. I think the, the, the Bear Bracky study that showed the sort of fragmentation yeah. of the industry was, was interesting. Were you one of the authors on, on that? I know you, yes. you were. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So obviously we had the great oversight and you know the sort of it was like the almost like the big the big six sort of insights that came out of that and one of them was that fragmentation and it was almost the veterinary mentality is to see everything as a threat and go oh my god we're losing market share we're, we're shrinking like the veterinary practice is is disappearing there's a case to be said that we should all immediately drive hard toward a niche as quickly as possible and looking around the industry the players that are doing well that have sectioned off and just made a bit their own are absolutely crushing it oh absolutely i mean there's some practices out there that are just doing a great job but yeah they have found their niche is general practice too broad a niche like is it dead i don't think it's remotely dead i think because i mean from a practical standpoint the vast majority of people are only ever going to see a general practitioner, right? right? I mean, they're not going to go in to see a specialist. And you know what? On so much stuff that the pet needs, you don't need a specialist, all right? I mean, there's going to be a point in life where there's going to be something that probably could be helped by a specialist. But, you know, the vast majority of stuff is from a GP level. I mean, and just from a cost standpoint, too. I mean, it's a pretty small percentage that ever see a specialist. Right. But That's so a- I don't see GP as being dead at all. It's interesting you say that as a, as a- small percentage and speaking to practice owners and younger veterinarians I spend a lot of time conversing with fear seems to be something that crops up a lot in this day and age and I, I don't know if it was always there or if it's more prevalent here lots of potential explanations for why that is from you know I'm fear of fear of surgery in particular yeah yeah and so you know you hear of referral hospitals now taking on surgical cases that right. would have been that could general have been practice done. bread yes, and butter. Yes, yes. Clients paying more, but being referred because there's almost like there's a there's a gap in that sort mm-hmm. of development mm-hmm. pathway that mm-hmm. people either aren't or don't want to mm-hmm. learn those mm-hmm. things, and and fear seems to be a common thread that crops up from observationally from the practice. Orders. I think, and see, I think you bring up a really good thing. It was, we t- you know, so you tie this into the people who only stay 15 months at their practices or leave within the first 12 weeks or yeah. whatever. So I think it's, I mean, I hated surgery in vet school. It scared me to death. I couldn't sleep the night before our surgery day, et cetera. Yep. It's a really scary thing to do. At least it was for me. Yep. And I think it is for a lot of people. And so some of that, you just got to have time and practice, right? But you've got to go into a practice where the owners of the practice and the other doctors are going to be understanding of that and work with you to become a better surgeon. And I don't think that happens as much as possible. You don't get that mentoring. You just, as an owner or the person doing the hiring, you can't just say, well, you're out of vet school. You ought to be able to attack these surgeries. It just doesn't work that way in most cases. So if you want to keep people, you got to mentor them. Is that a change... You know, why, why, why? I don't know. Right. And it feels like there's a change there. It feels I like, think there's like there's something some driving that. Yeah. But, and, and, and in, in the United Kingdom, where we're 60% corporate ownership, yep. I was speaking with Simon Innes, he's the CEO of CVS Group, predicting like 80% corporate ownership. 
you can see why in that model where you've got verticals controlled by corporate that the general practice they want that referral going to a local sure. referral center sure. it's then you know, and, and I, the logic is sound enough sure. the, the quality of care is going to be better it's going to be less complications obviously it's more expensive for the pet owner and there's more insurance in the UK looking at what the future maybe future casting so it's like Karen's future predictions we won't hold you to it but you know it'll be on record forever so no, <laughs> no pressure so you will so will. um <laughs> I'm sure some would do. I wouldn't. But, um, <laughs> but corporatization is happening. Um, Absolutely. First question is, what percentage of the market is now in corporate ownership and by, yeah. by property rather than percentage of revenue employees? Oh, or employees. So I guess I actually think about it more by percentage of revenue or properties and percentage of revenue. I don't know. So maybe of the general practices... Maybe it's um, 10 or 15% of the locations, but 15 or 20% of the revenue because corporate is buying bigger practices. I think if you look at specialty practice, it's a lot bigger. I mean, I'd say 60% of revenue is probably corporate now in specialty practices. I had a pleasure of a conversation with John Volk where basically he was in uh, the airport and uh, I basically cornered him and talked at him for a while. (laughs) He couldn't escape. He was of the opinion that corporate won't get to that level of penetration in the U.S. market. See, I tend to agree with that because we've still got, what, 60%, let's say, of practices that are small. So they're one and two doctor practices, a million dollars in revenue or less. The vast majority of corporate groups, that's not their first choice. They'll occasionally buy them. They'll do kind of a tuck-in situation where they're merge it into, right. you know, another practice or, or something along those lines. But so let's say that I think practices are definitely getting bigger. So, you know, in, in a few years, maybe it's only 50% of practices that are small practices, but that's yeah. still a lot of practices that probably are not going to be purchased corporate. And that's why I think it's curious that it's so much higher in the UK that, and how right. they're making, because you guys don't have all big practices. No. So how do they make that work? And our, our corporate groups are less interested. That is a very good question in in reverse because, or in, in return, because private equity money sloshing around, yep. paying crazy multiples. Yep. Like a multiple I would never pay for. Oh, a practice nuts. Absolutely. It. Agree. But the game's arbitrage right, past the person. Right, right. And at some point, somebody, there'll be an end user. Now, in the UK, CVS are on, listed on the stock exchange. I would define them as an end user. Yeah. They're not paying those multiples right. because. They're they investors, they're yeah, right? right. And, and they have a, a board of invest. You know, they're yeah. investors yeah. and a, a, that yeah. have to be responsible to, and their investors don't see the return then. So they have to play a different game. But there are then private equity-backed firms out there that are paying the, you know, ten, twelve, thirteen, fourteen That's, times multiple yep. for for practices, and they've they've a baseline is probably about half a million in revenue, mm-hmm. at least a couple of doctors um, in the UK. In the UK. Mm-hmm. But with that amount of penetration in the market, there's no doubt that they've bought some poor properties. I think they know that. And I mean, and that's happened here too, yeah. But yeah. It, it almost doesn't matter. What matters is they keep growing mm-hmm. and they keep yes. buying yes. because ultimately that's the game they're in mm-hmm. and there's going to be an end user and if have got X percent of the market, is that attractive to a Mars right. core right. or right. somebody like right. that who are going to pay 19 or 20 for right. that group of practices? So... Everybody wins, 
But it doesn't feel like Mars particularly wins in that situation. No. But if the same situation's happening here, I wonder if the, the driver is going to be, well, they're stock and we have to grow. So does the bar start to drop? Because it sounds like the bar for corporate is much higher here. It sounds like, you know, three doctor practices they're, they're looking for at least. Certainly two. Yep. Certainly two doctor practices and a million in revenue. Right. But I also think, like you said, a two doctor practice at 500,000 in revenue in yep. the UK. And that's really here a one doctor practice. Yep. So there's some differences in yeah pricing and you know the the pound versus the dollar right, and that kind right. of and, stuff and, and that would be about you know two doctors seven hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars that would right yeah i mean right now with us doing bad things with brexit that right probably <laughs> it's about four hundred thousand right. dollars <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> let's not talk about that brexit oh, is wait. an interesting one <laughs> right oh, no. yeah Exactly. But oh. we have our own problems here, so uh, right. <laughs> we'll stay leave those we'll alone. Stay off of that. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's leave those alone. But I, w- I wonder really how far that goes. And it would be interesting if the market didn't. Is it a healthy thing for the market to end up so corporatized with so few? You know, I think it's, it's a. I never think about it like that. Well, I guess I do and I don't. To some extent, I'm a realist, right? And it is what it is. You know, when you talk about it being healthy, it's certainly been healthy for those who have sold their practices and made more money than they ever thought that they were going to. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think it's healthy, too. I once heard um, Bob Anton with VCA talk about all of the things that VCA has brought to the market. You know, I think he was honestly tired of VCA getting beaten up a lot, you know. And But, you know, he was right in some of the stuff he talked about because it's offered not just the sales opportunities, but it's offered employment opportunities for more people to get to do more different interesting things. So if you're tired of practicing, you can be a business development person. You know, if you're tired of being a practice manager at one hospital, you can be some kind of a regional manager. And so they brought some employment opportunities, probably brought better benefits and compensation to at least some people. So there's been a lot of positive things there. The people I feel the sorriest for right now and that I think it's harming the most is the younger veterinarians now who want to own a practice. And it's incredibly limiting to whether or not they can find a practice or to the type of practice they can buy. Just that, hear, to me, is the saddest part. Right, and and put together with that debt and saying, well, look, you know, because mm-hmm. if you're going to, you either buy, buy into a practice, which was the traditional way. It also feels like that was a mentoring pathway as well. Yes. Like, so I'm going to settle yes. down roots here. If I want to have partnership, I'm actually going to have to pull my weight and, yes, and bring yes. something to the table. Yes. But there's some. If I want succession, I'm going to have to have you. Yes. Be able to replace me. Yes. So there's there's a complete win-win. Yes, absolutely. And we're both focused on something slightly different, but the the same thing helps us both mm-hmm. here. Hence, we'll mentor. When you're selling a practice, and now you have one or two years you know, where you have to stick around or, you know, you're a bad, right. a bad seller and, and you, you, know, you take a hit. Your skin's not in the game anymore. There's a mentality shift. And the level of, you know, that sort of discretionary input changes. From a mentoring standpoint? Almost from an everything standpoint. I think probably from an everything management standpoint, at least is how I see it. Yep. I think a lot of those doctors still love sticking around practicing medicine. So I don't think that the mindset necessarily changes on the practice of medicine. I don't think most of them liked management to start with. And it's a big sigh of relief to have somebody else worry about it. 
Okay, so and I'm going to keep probing on this one, and I'm almost trying to formulate ideas and just bounce them off you because you've got a big brain. The mentoring pipeline, I think we can agree that has a block or a dent or a ding in it somewhere. That seems not to be happening. Mentoring, certainly from a medicine standpoint. Actually, from both, but yeah. Right. And if, if we've got older, more senior vets, why is it they're not mentoring? Or is it actually, we're making an assumption that it's older vets that are not doing the mentoring. Is it the next generation who are more resistant to that? Or is it there's to a gap? To being mentored? Yeah, is there a gap now between what they're taught in university as a gold standard? It's oh, too I think far it's, it's away from what's practiced in practice. I mean, I think some of it is, is certainly when I came out of school, I mean, I think there's a, and it's, I'm sure it's an age bracket, but, you know, if you came out of school 50 years ago, right, yeah. you certainly didn't get any mentoring in your first practice. And, you know, there weren't the opportunities to make referrals to specialty hospitals. So if the pet was going to get care, it's going to get care at your hospital. Right. And so you had to be aggressive in learning things and trying things that you hadn't before. Right. So it was situationally, I think, very different than it is now. Right. If you come out of school now, I mean, you've spent your whole academic career working with specialists and with this idea that you need to refer you know, is there a different mindset with the younger veterinarians where they're more nervous about trying things? I think so. Some of it, I think, is how they're schooled and how they were brought up, right? right? But I also think the older generation, because they were never mentored and they just, you know, I'm going to get in here and try it. I've never done a cystotomy, but oh well, you know. Right. Suck it and see. And, 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 exa- oh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And and I think sometimes the older generation has less understanding of what the younger generation needs, less willing to do it. And you know what? At some point, too, in your career, you're just tired. You're like, I've done this for a long time. I got to see all these clients. I'm not getting home until 8 o'clock at night anyways. And now I'm supposed to spend an hour a day mentoring my younger veterinarian. It's a challenge all the way around. It's interesting. So then you were talking about this, this ties a couple of things together. And now I can't remember who it is that's doing this, but... I was hearing about, because, you know, trying to find ER clinicians right now is a total nightmare. Oh, yeah, really hard. And so it's one of the corporate groups, but is essentially putting together kind of like ER school for people who want to work for them and work in ER. And so they've got a whole very structured training program set up so people can spend time learning some of those skills that you need, getting comfortable with it, and then they send them out to their practices. And I'm like, that's cool. I thought that was great. Yeah, absolutely. There's something similar in the UK with Vets Now, a big national provider of after-hours care. Yeah. And they they have, you know, good training programs to pull people in. Yeah. Almost, you know, not de-stress that, but take the fear factor away. Absolutely. Because it's just Uh another skill. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, of course, that's one of the things, you know, we kind of go back and forth talking about corporate and independent practices. That's something a corporate practice can do that's hard for an independent practice to do. Right. But it's the concept that I think is really attractive to younger veterinarians. It's that training concept, and there'll be somebody, the mentoring, to help you along. Yeah. So, yeah. Changing tax slightly, what are the trends that you're seeing in the future that you think are going to be the most impactful over the next 5, 10, 15 years? What's on your radar is stuff you're interested in or noodling on or just think, you know, this is actually going to change the game? I think the practices that are going to be the most successful are the ones that, I mean, good quality medicine in my mind is a given, right? would never suggest that you practice poor quality medicine. But I think the practices that are going to be the most successful are those that have a niche and are providing the non-medicine stuff that that niche wants. A lot of that is convenience, but a lot of that is price too. 
And so I think it's finding that niche. It's recognizing what is it my pet owners want. Part of that's from a medicine standpoint, right? So, I mean, you're going to have pet owners who love their pets and want to provide the best basic care that they have, but they're never spending $3,000 to diagnose a cat with lymphoma. Just not going to happen, you know? But the practice offers the basic stuff. And then also from a client service or convenience standpoint, sees what's important. And maybe that's Sunday hours, maybe it's evening hours, whatever it is. And then also can price it to meet the needs of these various groups of people. So I think more niche practices is going to be successful as part of it. I think telemedicine, too, is going to be interesting. Are there, okay, telemedicine, pause on that, come back to that, because yep. that's, that's a good one to talk about. Are there any examples of practices or niche, niche businesses that jump out to your mind as doing it right? And can you give, you know, articulate what it is that they're doing? I think we're all, you certainly see the niche practices at the high end where they're not a a true, they're not a specialty practice because they don't have board certified specialists there, but they're offering high end medicine. They're doing a lot of that surgery you mentioned that doesn't have to be referred, but is done. They tend to charge high fees. It's a high touch kind of a practice. So there's those niches, but there's a very small number of pet owners who either can or choose to pay for that, right? So then you have to look at niches. And then there's a ton of people that are kind of in the middle, this sort of mainstream veterinary medicine. Those don't differentiate one from another very well. But then I think the niches are also interesting at the lower end, because it's all fine to say you shouldn't have a pet if you can't afford to pay for care. But that's just a very flippant way of blowing off the fact that cost is a real issue in veterinary medicine, you know. And so at the lower end, I mean, we see niches now. We see people who go to the two-hour clinics at Pet Supplies Plus and get their vaccinations. And, you know, a lot of mainstream veterinary medicine tends to put that down. But those are people who care about their pets and are trying to do the right thing. And some of that is about cost. Some of it, I think, is actually about convenience. I think they find that more convenient than a typical veterinary hospital. You're starting to see the start of the practices like in Walmart and stuff. Right. They offer more services than the, say, the pet supplies vaccination. They're actually offering some limited medical services. That's a niche, I think, for a group of pet owners who find that that works for them. Yep. And again, some of it is cost, but I think a certain amount of that is convenience. I have seen then more in what we would consider your typical independent owned practice. There was a practice I worked with once and I was actually working with the buyer of this practice. The practice was terrific. One of the most profitable practices I've ever seen in kind of a blue collar area in a Dallas suburb. Offered all the basic services but didn't do almost anything in the way of surgery. Didn't do dentistry or maybe very basic dentistry. Yep. But you know heartworm tests and vaccinations and preventives and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they did that amazingly well. They had a very loyal clientele, very profitable. So it sold at a good price. The buyer, though, was like, oh, but I want to take this. And now I want these people to do dentals. And now I want Mm. these people to do more, you know, more complicated kinds of surgeries. And this and that and the other. It didn't fit that clientele. He ultimately ran that practice into bankruptcy. Because those people are like, this isn't what I want. It doesn't work for me. And I'm going elsewhere. So it's those kinds of niches as well that... That sounds like a classic example of, you know, buying a business that's flying along at the top. Exactly. And then doing... It's it's almost the reverse of 
what you'd want to do is like find that. I'm curious on this as a, as a strategy, finding a business that's broken, but has a customer base. Like, yeah. which is which is this? So let's let's go back to our graduates. Yeah. All right. Let me pitch this in a different way. Let's go back to our graduates or young doctors. They've cut their teeth. They've become competent enough to think, okay, I'm ready for the next challenge. They have options. What are they, the Felstead's best career paths or, or business pathways for them? Like, what are good options for them to consider getting into business ownership? What are bad options they should steer clear of? Getting into ownership or starting after school or any Everything. of the above let's Everything imagine the imagine above. they've they've done enough time and gotten enough experience under their belt that they're now you know they're competent with the clinical side of practice let's say they've been in business they've been in practice for five yeah. years working as yeah. an associate yeah. doctor now they want to set up for themselves they want to tackle this debt they're, they're they're fed up working for somebody else what are the smart options for them to get into business and what are the really bad options what are the lines yeah. they shouldn't yeah on? yeah okay so i mean i think you've got you can obviously buy a practice you can do a franchise you can start a practice in some situations you can own part of a corporate practice so maybe we talk about each of those the franchises i've seen are expensive and i i struggle with whether that makes sense if you're going to own a franchise what does that or be a franchisee like, well because it usually ends up meaning that you may have an initial franchise fee that you have to pay i struggle less with the initial fee but it's going to depend on how much it is it's the percentage of the revenue or the expenses that you have to pay for to the franchise so, so management fee effectively management fees or fees for particular services but you know if you're all of a sudden paying five or six or seven percent of your revenue for that i mean your 20 percent profit margin just became 14 or 13. Not saying there couldn't be a model out there that works, but yeah. if I were going to look at a franchise, I'd make sure you get some strong financial advice before you launch into it. And that sounds like quite a reasonable management fee compared to some of them. Like um, I've, I've, I've heard 15, 20% management fees. I can't even imagine a 20% management fee. <laughs> no. That's nuts. I mean, that's your whole profit margin right there. You know, so yeah, insane. yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Not for the management, no. not for the practice. And there's investor. not a lot of fran there's not a lot of franchise options out there, and I don't think many people do it. But I actually just recently read an article about this, which is why it's a little bit on my mind. I'm not saying it's necessarily a terrible thing in a particular situation, but that one I think you really need some advice on. You know, yeah. So then there's owning a piece of a corporate practice. I've typically seen that happen when a corporate group has bought a practice that has associates who had wanted to be owners and now they own some small percentage. Yeah. And I think that can work. Again, I think you need some financial and legal advice on that yep. to what, make sure you what understand What percentage it. are they typically getting in there? Small, you know, like five, 5%. 10, yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Certainly the corporate group is going to have overall the majority ownership. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So then we come back to what you've seen more historically, which is startups and buying a practice. You know, the challenge right now with buying a practice is, you know, you used to be able to find a practice that was a million, half, two million, three million in revenue and purchase it, right? You might have worked in it or you found it through a broker. I mean, but that was a very reasonable, easy enough option, right? Yep. That's hard these days. And what would a multiple have been back then to oh, buy a practice? And like even that? now, if you're talking about selling from one veterinarian to another, the multiple's 
five, give or take. So maybe four to six. Okay. All right. So you know. do, and that's, that's a oh, totally reasonable. comforting to Completely hear. Completely yeah. reasonable. And you could pay that off in 10 years and you could get financing for it. Right. And very, very doable. Right. Exactly. You could get financing for it even with a certain amount of student debt. Right. You know. But, yeah. But now. Now, the bigger practices, certainly the, the million and a half and above, the vast majority are getting sold corporate because yeah. I'd sell it to my associate for a million. Corporate will pay me three million. If you're a seller, I mean, how can you, you say you no? You cannot blame you the sellers for you that. You can't no. blame the sellers for that. No. And uh, are they selling based on a multiple in profit or revenue or depends? The more profitable you are, the better, no matter who you sell to. But if you've got a practice with a certain level of profitability, you'll get more selling it to corporate than individually. Yeah. So. Okay. So buying the bigger practices is, is just. And, and it's not. I mean, occasionally it happens, but it's hard. And financial suicide, it sounds like as well. So I, and multiples. I have a client that I worked with and she bought a bigger practice, $2 million, But the only way she could do it, she had a million dollar inheritance from a grandmother yep. that she put in. She couldn't even get the financing for it. That's part of it right there, you know. And for her. It was a reasonable option because it was probably the only opportunity to get a practice of that size in her community. Yeah. But it's a harder option. Yeah. So then you end up with, okay, I'm going to buy a smaller practice. Yep. And I'm going to buy an $800,000 practice or a half a million dollar practice or something like that. And I think that's a reasonable option if you think you can grow you, it. You could grow it, right? Yeah. And of course, you got to make sure it doesn't have a fatal flaw. You know, I mean, if you go in and say, okay, these people are used to spending, you know, they have an average transaction charge of 75 bucks, which is low, you know, and, but I'm going to educate these people about the quality of medicine and now they're all going to pay 150. Well, that isn't going to happen. You know, you can move people somewhere along the line. So you've got to be comfortable with what you're getting and what you can do to grow it. What other fatal flaws are there in that decision? The fatal flaws in my mind are the practices that one is the level of medicine. And when I say fatal flaw there, it's not that the level of medicine being practiced is bad as long as it's meeting, you know, the minimum standard of care. It's a fatal flaw for an individual buyer, though, if they want to do something different. Right. That's something they're going to have trouble changing. I mean, you know, maybe over a 10-year period they can, but then they've essentially just got a whole new group of clients come in. Yep. And then why'd you buy this practice? Maybe you should have started one. Although at least when you buy something, you have You've got revenue. some revenue coming in. Yeah, exactly. So it depends on the situation. Yeah, yeah. But other fatal flaws, I think, are ones where you've got a really toxic environment with the employees or a poor reputation in the community. You know, you go and you look at the reviews and three quarters of them are terrible, those kinds of things. Does that come down to then the fatal flaws paying too much of a premium for a practice at that point? So yes. if you got that practice for... A quarter of the price because nobody would touch yeah. it. That oh, could sure. be a bargain. That could be a bargain if it's stuff you think you can fix and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But exactly. harder to fix. Okay. And then, so does that leave... And then startups. Is startups. The okay. Word. So let's yeah. talk about that. So startup. I'm not a huge fan of startups because I feel like we have plenty of veterinary practices out there. I think most communities that you go to, they don't need any more veterinary hospitals. They're well served. You know? But sometimes people find a niche, right? And it's either a geographic niche, like they've gotten to, I think this happened in Denver, maybe in Dallas too, where you're starting to see an increase in the number of people living downtown. There weren't any practices downtown. Now they are. And the people that got in there first, you know, have established a base there. So that kind of a niche, or if you can find a client service niche. Yep. And But it's not just offering convenience and client service. You have to communicate it out to pet owners so they know to come to your practice and that's the other piece people aren't good at 
that is having done both the startup is so much harder and so much more startup fraught with really terror because yeah, you're I totally like agree. i have a, a client i worked with who started a practice in the midwest and i talked to him like the second day it was open and he was talking to me he's like we're here and there's no clients coming in the door. And I was like, oh, my God, that is really the scariest thing in the world, you know. feel like you're just yeah. in the storeroom yeah. burning yeah. money. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, 20 years ago, you could just open a practice and people came and it wasn't a problem. It's a lot harder now. You know, most of them don't go bankrupt, but they're not bringing in the revenue and profits they hoped they how, were. How long would it typically take for somebody, you know, like how long somebody setting out in that pathway or maybe for each of the pathways, what's an expectation to set on when you will start to be taking some taking significant some money profit home. out of it? Yeah. You know, it varies a lot. And I'm lot. assuming over and above a, you know, a minimal base salary, just the least you can take out of it to not mess right. up the cash flow. I it's several years. I mean, I don't think you can count on it being much beyond that. You know, like the one I was talking about who was talking about, you know, like we're here, but there's nobody coming in the door. He's been open a year and a half, and he's taken home fifty thousand a year. Yeah. So that's you, there's obviously has to be another source of income as well. Either you've got a spouse or a significant other, or you've got savings or right, something. Right. You know. You know. I knew one woman who opened a practice, and she didn't have a non compete. She opened it a couple of miles away from where she had used to work. She had a million dollars in revenue in year one. Right. But that's the exception, and, not the rule. I know, you know, like not having a non-compete is like, oh yeah. So she just sucked across a bunch of clients. She just sucked across. From, yeah. 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 That's nice. Nice work if you can it, get nice it. Nice work if you can get it. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. Tele- telemedicine. Let's let's um, dive in there. So what are your thoughts on te- This is such a big field. And even defining what the heck it means yeah. is quite a task in its yeah. own. So yeah. which, which bits of telehealth, if I can call it, Telehealth, yeah, I think telehealth is a better term, actually. Um, which bits are you excited about and think will will change things? I actually think the telemedicine part done right, and there's a couple of different aspects of that, has the opportunity to change things a fair amount. You know, the difficulty with, so, and when I say telemedicine, I'm meaning we have a VCPR, right? right? Okay, and so we're actually diagnosing and treating, you know, right. electronically, so to speak. Yep. I think, you know, what's hard about that right now, we're still dealing with the legal issues. And, you know, the big one being, can you establish a VCPR electronically, or does that have to be in person? Yep. And then when is it appropriate to treat what are your afterwards? Thought, what are your thoughts on that? I think I am not really a fan of establishing a relationship electronically. I personally would like to see the patient at least once. Right. And then I think that you have to decide where it's appropriate to use telemedicine. You know, if I've got a patient that I've been treating for some kind of a skin disease and they're like, oh, Fluffy's itching again. Can you take a look at this? Look at these nasty pustules, you know, or whatever. Yeah. You know, I could feel very comfortable doing that. You know, if they're like, Fluffy's having seizures and can't walk, I'm like, ah, maybe we need to come in, you know? Right, right, right. But I think this is part of the problem. This is why I think we're having so much trouble establishing what telemedicine is going to look like. It's not a straight line interface. It's not a straight line. It's It's not all or nothing. Yeah. You know, it isn't like if you say, okay, yes, I'm going to do telemedicine. Now I'm agreeing that I'll establish a relationship electronically, you know, and I'll treat everything that way. Decide what you think makes sense and do it. Right. You know, but I think if we as veterinary medicine 
don't be actively involved in establishing this, I think it'll get crammed down our throats and we won't like it very well. Absolutely. Who'll cram it down our throats? I think the public demand will cram it down our throats and yep. legislatively it will. It will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm a little passionate on this topic because this is actually my frustration, I think, sometimes with any kind of change in veterinary medicine, leave telemedicine or telehealth out of it, but it's anything, you know, it's wellness plans, it's whatever. Yeah. It's the fact that you can buy drugs, you know, from PetMed Express now. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think part of what is holding us back as a profession, certainly holding back individual practices, is the concept that pet owners should have to do, the, do it the way that we want to do it. Right. And we as a profession shouldn't have to change to meet the needs of our clients. I think that's a challenge. We always feel like technology as technology and innovation and marketing always seems just a couple of steps ahead yes, of the regulation. Yes, absolutely. And and in this and, case, and not just regulation, but how people feel about it. Right, right. And it's pretty clear clients would like. Yeah, I think this. so. Absolutely. Uh, it, it makes sense. And you can. You, you, it's always been a frustration for that recurrent ear infection yes. or something. And clients yes. come say, "Hey, it's back again, doc." And you're like, "Hey, you have to come and have like an exam." Mm-hmm. And it infuriates them. So yep. that, that makes that makes perfect sense. The technology side of it seems like actually we're a little behind where we need to be in order to, you know, and I, I agree with you about I'm uncomfortable with us establishing that VCPR electronically. Yeah. I, like there is a, and certainly the training I do in the exam room, is there's, just, there's a, an art to collecting that history, to mm-hmm. F- mm-hmm. getting that physical examination, to reading the room mm-hmm. and, and what's actually going on here. Well, you just don't get that on a Skype call. And there's just some things without a physical exam you can't find. Right. You know, I remember when I was practicing, we had a dog that we were about to anesthetize. I was straight out of school, so I did a full physical exam on this dog prior to anesthesia. It had pulse deficits. Yeah. Never find that no. on on a you know tell if you were not doing a physical exam. No right, yeah. and, and and technology would have a hard time picking that yeah. up. Well, existing technology. Yeah, yeah. But there will come a time, and it's probably not too. I can, you know, the chip like subdermal chips that read it. Yeah, at ICF yeah. and and give yeah. you more accurate readings. We, we sort of have that for things like diabetic yeah. management now. Yeah. But but for everything, you know, the the wearables technologies that that, that seems really useful in terms of ga- data gathering yeah. and processing yeah. and we've seen people with forays in there which yeah. not quite worked and probably a little too early and the technology's a bit clunky but we're going to be there at some point right right and the speed of technology and processing power is just phenomenal so that'll happen before long it will what does the role of the veterinarian look like in the future with technological advance and change where do you see that That's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I think to some extent, technology can also take care of some of the more boring aspects of practice, you know, in the same way that using technicians can as well. I mean, how many times do you want to have the flea talk, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and how interesting is it taking some dog's temperature, you know? So, I mean, I like that aspect of technology. I think the veterinarian's role in the future, it's going to narrow down to treatments that really only a veterinarian can do. So obviously we're talking about surgery there to a large extent or anesthetic kinds of procedures, you know, I still think there's a role for the veterinarian in communication right? because they are ultimately the doctor, right? I'd have to think some more about this. It's an interesting question. I haven't thought about it quite that broadly. Technology feels like it's got its place, but, but you, it's not going to replace it technology. Right. 
right. trust people. Plus, you have to, technology can't pull together, technology doesn't have the thought process. Right. I mean, I know there's, you know, artificial intelligence and all this kind of stuff, right? But you still need somebody to pull together all the data that you've gathered and, you know, put together a differential list and, you know, decide where to go next and what are you ruling in, what are you ruling out. Right, right. That needs somebody thinking about it. All right. So, Karen, we're going to move into our quick fire question round. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I know there's so many questions. Like, I've got a million questions I could ask you, and, but, you know, you've got to jump off and get ready for your presentation. So, so the short form questions, you can take them any direction you want to take okay. them. And... Um, is pretty lighthearted or not as the case may be. <laughs> okay you can, you can take it so what's the thing you do better than anybody else what's your superpower my superpower i think my superpower work-wise is practicality i think i can take a lot of information about a practice or what i think is going on in the profession and synthesize it into here's what i think that we should do and when I get feedback, like when I speak or whatever, that's what I get a lot of feedback on, is it's not just, it's practical. It's here's something I can actually make a change on. And I don't think everybody does that. I also think I do a good job when I'm working with individual clients in customizing my recommendations to their practice. Okay, so the, the flip side to that then is, what's your kryptonite? What's your Achilles heel? Oh, my and, God. And, and how, if anything... I don't want to do HR management. That's why I have a very tiny company. <laughs> I can talk to people about it and what you need to do, but my lack of patience in that area. <laughs> That's why I don't spend a lot of time going into practices. <laughs> okay, got it. If you could change... just If you could change one thing, it would be an impactful thing about veterinary medicine what would it be make us more open to change okay so make us more changey <laughs> more yeah yeah this one's one of my f most fun questions what was the best piece of advice you've ever given or received i think the best advice i ever got actually came from one of the first accounting jobs i had i worked for ernst and young which was one of the big eight accounting firms and it was actually a whole it's just a whole thought process about how to think through problems and how to solve them. So I guess it's not one piece of advice, but, and this is probably why I'm very practical in the advice that I give myself, but it's not just accepting something, but going, why is that? How did it get to be like that? And so I guess it's to think through problems before you ask questions or assume that you know what the answer is. And so it's using common sense, right? So that that fleeting occasion. Yeah. Seen. Yeah. Commodity. Yep. And what was the worst piece of advice you've either received or, oh, or so given? Oh, so when I was going to do my year worth of prereqs before I went to vet school, and these people at UT Arlington are like, "Oh, you couldn't possibly take nutrition and biology and chemistry all in the same semester." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, watch me," and I did. So. <laughs> You got to know yourself and what you're capable of and how much you care about making it happen, you know? Okay. What's the best gift you've given or received recently? You got a, a, Like a physical gift? Yeah, just what's the coolest thing that you... Are you, are you sort of a nerdy, geeky sort of a person and, and you get cool That's things? That's a hard question. No, I don't think I'm that... No, not particularly. I don't know. Nothing pops into my mind on that one. <laughs> I think you should go to your next question. Got it. 
if it comes back, I'll tell you. <laughs> now, one of the, th the questions I always, I, I have a reading list that's ridiculously out of control. And this question does not help that situation <laughs> at all. So I'm not sure why I keep asking it, but I'm always really curious about where and what people are into and, and riffing on at the minute. So uh, have you read any books or uh, uh, maybe in the last 12 the books. months? The books. <laughs> the books. It's my Scottishness coming out. It is your Scottish accent. Yeah, like, Kaz looking at me going, what is a book? What is a book? <laughs> I haven't read <laughs> any books. It's a strange, weird thing. <laughs> Do you mean booze? <laughs> there no, you go. <laughs> so you could go booze as well. Um, so what book has been very impactful for you that you've read? Like it's a good book in the last 12 months. It's probably not the 12 months, but it's, I tend to read a lot of outside of work because I feel like I'm just think, 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 thinking, you know, all the time in work. And so when it's, when I'm outside of work reading, I tend to read light stuff, you know, just fun yeah. fiction and that kind of yeah. stuff. But if, if I'm going to think about books that have been impactful to me from a life standpoint, it's a couple of the Ayn Rand books. So Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. And, you know, I don't agree with all of her philosophy. It was somewhat extreme, but incredibly well-written books, a good story, but just an interesting take on life as well. So those are the ones I always think of as having been impactful. And perhaps associated with that, you know, you spend a lot of time on the roads traveling. How do you keep yourself sane? Do you have any any habits or things you do just, just to I, look after yourself? Yeah, I do. I carve out. I, because I, even though, I mean, I like to speak, I like to talk with you and, and friends and that kind of stuff. I'm a, a genuinely an introvert, you know. I mean, I always think about introvert versus extrovert on how do you recharge yourself. Yeah. And I have to have time to myself. So yeah. I've gotten to the point on the road that I carve out time for myself. And it'll be a couple of evenings here or a few hours in the afternoon. But And I go and I sit in my hotel room and I don't talk to anybody. And it makes all the difference. Interesting. Really interesting. Uh, I'm sorry I put a microphone in your face. No, 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 no. I like it. And I genuinely like doing this stuff. And I like speaking. But at some point, I'm, I'm done. What's the most controversial thing people don't know about you that but matters? Controversial. Or unknown thing. Unknown? Maybe it was ice skating. I probably wouldn't tell you because <laughs> if it's unknown, it's unknown for a reason. Um, I think because I had this whole accounting life beforehand, I was actually married back then. Honestly, if I had to pick one fact that people are totally surprised about is when I say I used to be married. You know, because this has been a thousand years ago. It was it was in my accounting life, right? Not my vet life, you know. So that always seems to surprise people. When I say that, just because, you know, we've all known each other for a long time, right? Right. And so if I graduated in 96, you know, I mean, we're talking, I've spent 25 years in veterinary medicine now, you know, actually more than that. And so, and I've known a lot of people for that long, and we all think we all know each other, but then stuff pops up, you right, know? Right, right, right. So it's certainly not controversial, but it's just uh, we see each other it's a surprise. Fleetingly we all follow each other around, and, yes, yeah, yes. We're all in our little echo chamber, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. If you give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation as a veterinarian, what would that piece be? Work hard, and I get work-life balance. I'm not a good practitioner of it, but I believe in it. <laughs> um, company entirely included. <laughs> yeah, and some of that's my generation, right? I'm the suck-it-up generation, work hard, you know, which is not always healthy. But, but still, if you're not putting the time in, you're not going to achieve some things, you know. 
so work hard, but I think be always open to learning from everybody. Even the people you think are morons, you'll learn something from, <laughs> you know, and, and be willing to admit your mistakes because we all make them. Amen to that. Now, what's your weapon of choice when it comes to communication, social media, things like that? Oh, Do you have a preferred I option? actually, I don't do a ton of it. So I follow, I have a Twitter account. You'd never be able to find me. And all I follow is cats, gymnastics, and ice skating. But I don't post. I really don't do. So I follow some on social media. I don't post on it. All right. So. And I think part of it is that extroverted, I mean, introverted part of my nature. It just makes me uncomfortable to say, here I am. In, okay. you know, wherever. In which case, I'm going to rephrase the question. Okay. The question was going to be if you could send one tweet. Oh, bad idea. But, and everything could light up with it. But, but let's use a different question. If you could get a message across to everybody in our sphere, or heck, let's increase the sphere, like in, in the world. The world. What would the message be? I use the frame of Twitter because it limits the character. Yeah, time, so. right, right. Keep it short. Right, right. And it, and it might it might be, you know, if, if you could flash up an advert on every, every laptop in the world, what message would you want the world to receive from you? You get one, it's a one-time A one-time message. That's hard. I guess it comes down to, probably ties in to some extent on advice to new grads and that kind of stuff, but it's a little bit broader. I guess... I'm not going to phrase this right. I'd have to think about it a little bit more. But I think what can change and make any relationship more powerful, whether that's with a colleague or a client or somebody that you have a personal relationship with, is open and good quality communication. It's listening to people. It's not putting them down. It's not assuming that you know everything. And so if you can focus on improving communication skills to me that makes all the difference in the world perfect where can people find you not on twitter but <laughs> if they want to reach out to you um, like my contact information yeah, if you, i mean you don't have to give an email address or whatever but where, where would you like because people listen to the podcast lots of people listen to it and they often like to either say thank you or sure, get in touch no. or if they want to have and karen I'm come in and take a look at their numbers and give, help them um, so where do they reach three you? things my website is www.pantherity.com so it's P-A-N-T-H-E-R-A-T. It looks like Pan the Rat, but I've, it's pronounced. Right, so tell me about that. Where does that <laughs> name come from? <laughs> so uh, Panthera T is actually the genus and species of tigers. And I picked it just because I like tigers and I wanted an interesting name for my company name. But when I called GoDaddy to get the domain names, the guy goes, Pan the Rat? Is that really what you want? <laughs> Never thought about it like that. I'm like, that's an, an unintended consequence. But I tell the story and people laugh and they remember it. So <laughs> www.pantherity.com. Pantherity.com. Um, okay, so that's one of the places. That's one. My email is karen at pantherity.com. That's easy. Want my phone number? Sure, go ahead. Cell phone number, 214-862-3802. All right. Um, those are all the best ways to get me. Perfect. Um, Karen, you such a good sport coming on. If, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation totally enjoyed I just it. feel like i've absolutely just scratched the surface and it'd be fun to keep talking right so you have to run do your presentations i'm going to be respectful of time and let you go if you have questions for karen get in touch let her know send her thanks for being on the show karen thanks for the work you're doing in the profession 
your ability to go and crunch that number and give us <laughs> insights. I like is number certainly, crunching. Certainly, I appreciate that super part from you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. So just me again. Thank you so much for listening. A couple of shout outs. Firstly, to Karen. Wasn't she a wonderful guest? And didn't she share such brilliant information? Please show her some love on the internet and let her know what you thought. And also, if you enjoyed the show, if you are enjoying all of the shows, shout me out on iTunes. Leave a star rating, leave a review, very gratefully received. But most importantly, please tell your friends about the show. And finally, don't forget to request your free digital safety manual and free insurance quotes from our show sponsor, AVMAPLIT, at avmaplit.com forward slash Dr. Dave. Until next time, be safe, be well, and be happy.